Hi there. It is a privilege to be together with all of you today to worship the God of the universe. Men, you can sign up for Ignite today. You can tear off that bottom of your notes page. You want to do it now? One, two, three. There wasn't a lot of going on out there, but you can do that and you can hand it to an usher on the way out. Don't pay today. Just uh, hang on to your money. You just hand the sheet to the usher. The 10 bucks might not make it. So hang on to your 10 bucks until Saturday and you know, you can pay when you show up. How's that? I heard some gals this morning, they were hitting me up like, we, we want to go to that. And I'm like, sorry, secret society deal. You cannot go to that. Men only. It was a couple of months back now that I was thumbing through a trade magazine, like a church magazine. And the statistic that I'm about to show you absolutely jumped off the page at me. It grieved me, it bummed me out, it made me sad, made me mad, it frustrated me. I got so exercised by the statistic that I'm about to show you that in an instant, I tore the entire page right out of the magazine, which you should know is very unlike me. I like to keep all of my reading material neat and tidy in pristine condition. No folded corners, no torn pages. I always, every time before I read a magazine, I go through the entire thing front to back and I carefully extract all of those stupid like postage paid response cards that plug up the smooth flipping of the pages. I'm ill, I know, but it's me, Right? And as I saw this statistic, nobody was around, but I declared even aloud, I'll have to craft a message around that statistic because we must do something about that. And you're like, what is the statistic, Brian, that got you so exercised? Here it is. Only 50% of Americans say that life in the United States would be better if more Americans lived as Christians. Only 50% of Americans said that life in the United States would be better if more Americans lived as Christians. That's down from 61% just two years ago. Whoa. Let that hit you kind of like a punch in the gut, right? And let that sort of wash over you. And you know what that statistic means? It means that half of the people in America are looking at us. They're looking at the capital C, Church of Jesus Christ, all the millions and millions of Christ followers, all of the thousands and thousands of churches. By the way, there's 300,000 churches in America. They're looking at the thousands and thousands of churches in America. They're looking at all the hundreds of thousands of Bible studies and small groups. They're looking at tens of millions of hours of quiet times and prayer times and Bible reading times. And they're looking at the hundreds and hundreds of Christian events, Christian concerts, Christian conferences, the tens of thousands, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of Christian college and seminary students the hundreds of denominations across the country, hundreds of thousands of pastors and church staff, hundreds of millions of dollars that are being given to those churches, flowing through those churches, supposedly dollars that are being turned into beneficial and tangible ministry that makes a positive difference on the planet for Jesus Christ. And you know what half of the people in America are saying about all of that? They're saying it doesn't matter. They're saying it doesn't matter. We don't care. We actually need less of that, not more. We need less of that, not more. 
And that grieved me, and it stirred my heart, and it caused me to look long and hard in the mirror at me, at my own life. And it caused me to ask the question, are people who are outside of the Christian faith, are they looking at me and my life and my words and my actions and my lifestyle, and Lord, is it me who is causing people who are outside of the Christian faith to decline in their esteem of Christianity? Lord, is it me? And then after I looked real long and real hard at my life, my actions, I got really discouraged professionally speaking. I mean, really, the things that we're about around Journey, like doing whatever it takes to connect people to God, that's what we're about. That's the mission that we're on together. Thinking about and reaching out intentionally to people who are living life far from God, outside of the Christian faith, doing things like attempting to serve and engage the community instead of operating as like a little holy huddle and kind of a us for no more little click. All that stuff that we're about is the very stuff that you'd think should be turning that statistic around and pointing it up and to the right. So I got real deflated, like, oh good. Glad we're making a measurable impact in the wrong direction, right? You notice my deflation turns to cynicism about that fast, right? And you hear that stat, and it bums me out, and I hope it bums you out, and it seems really, really apparent that at the very least, a guy named David Kinneman has it right when he says that the church, the capital C Church of Jesus Christ, that Christianity, according to Kinneman, has an image problem. At the very least, I think he's right, and at the very most, the church has a very serious problem related to our mission and its accomplishment. And it's probably both of those things, isn't it? Esteem for the lifestyle of the Christ follower is fading alarmingly quickly among people who are outside of the Christian faith. According to that stat that got my heart all roiled up and led to actually the writing of this message, it's down 11 points in just two years. You run that out 10 years and where are we? In a very bad place. It's dramatic, it's alarming, and it's alarming because according to David Kenneman, the perceptions of those outside of the Christian faith are way more than just superficial image problems. A simple rebranding of Christianity and of the church of Jesus Christ will not turn our present decline around. That is not enough. When people outside of the Christian faith talk about us and talk about the church, They speak of us, the capital C Church of Jesus Christ, being completely and totally infatuated with ourselves, right? The most common reaction actually to Christianity from those outside of the faith is that they think that we who follow Jesus Christ, Christians, no longer represent what Jesus actually had in mind for his church. They think that Christianity in American society is not even close to what it was meant to be by its founder, Jesus Christ. To so, so, so many people outside of the Christian faith, Christianity looks weak, impish, threadbare. People outside of the Christian faith speak of having a very, very difficult time even seeing Jesus in his church because of all the negative baggage that surrounds his movement. 
One person who is not a Christian made this observation. Christianity has become bloated with blind followers who would rather repeat slogans than actually feel true compassion and care. Christianity has been marketed and streamlined into a juggernaut of fear-mongering and has lost its own heart, he said. Christians, people who are supposed to have the very biggest heart of all, the very heart of God, have no heart whatsoever for people outside of the Christian faith. Now, some among us will argue that any criticism leveled among, against Christianity, us, they're just sort of straw man arguments conjured up to debase the message of Jesus Christ. But upon closer examination, that's really quite far from the truth. And while it's also true that our present predicament is not all our fault, the stakes are of immense gravity, folks. Unless we step up and own and deal with our parts of the problem, the church of Jesus Christ will fail entirely at connecting with a new generation. Now, I get it. We are not entirely responsible for the decisions people outside the church of Jesus Christ make. But we are absolutely responsible and accountable when our actions and attitudes, which misrepresent a holy, just, and perfect, loving God, push those outside of faith in Jesus Christ away from him. That means that every single one of us who follows Jesus bears some degree of responsibility for Christianity's black eyes. This isn't about blame, huh? It is, however, about the things that we can and should influence. Our lives, our church, the way we express Christ to others, and what it actually looks like to really, truly follow Jesus. Now, there are always several angles that a message along these lines can take. One of those angles would be a good old-fashioned Mark Driscoll-esque rebuke sermon. Some of you know what I'm talking about. That'd be where I stood up here and I rebuke, which rebuke is uh, uh, the biblical word for spanking with the Bible. That'd be where I stand up here and I rebuke you for your life and your actions being the cause of this alarming statistic that we're trying to get our arms around and wrestle through today. But I don't believe that that's who you are. I do not believe that's who you are, nor do I believe that that is what you need, so I'm not going to take that tack with you. Instead, I want us to approach this from the perspective of who and what we're trying to be as a community called Journey Church in Bozeman, Montana. Who are we? What do we want to be about? And I want us to think about this like this. On, on an altogether too few handful of occasions, I've had this remarkable privilege of fly fishing with my good friend John Oakland, who is our executive pastor. He's a fantastic fisherman. And a day on a boat, on a river with John, really, I'm not exaggerating, is the stuff of dreams and legends. Now, I, you should know, am a fly fishing neophyte. I know hardly anything about it. John's keenly aware of that, but he does not treat me like I'm a fly fishing neophyte. A day on the river with John Oakland is like fishing with the best guide you could ever imagine. And as Oakland and I move down the river in that drift boat, he's always directing me to cast my line out ahead of the boat. And on a few occasions when I'm not snagging his ear or his lip or his nose or something like that, I get that done. 
and my cast goes out ahead of the boat, and then the boat moves toward that cast, doesn't it? And so, like fly fisher people, gender inclusive around here, like fly fisher people cast his or her line up ahead of the boat, and then the current moves us toward that cast, I'd like us today to do just that. I'd like us to actually cast our line out ahead a bit as a community, as a church, and move toward that cast. Move toward the goal of us, the people of Journey Church, that we would be people about whom it is said life in the Gallatin Valley would be better if more people lived like the people of Journey Church. And you get around that. And I'm going to tip my hand right here, right now, all cards face up, and I'm going to tell you, it, folks, is a love thing. It is, it always will be, a love thing. Turning that statistic around and pointing it in the opposite direction is a love thing. If we ever hope to become a community of people about whom it is said life in the Gallatin Valley would be better if more people lived like the people of Journey Church, well, then our capacity to love people must increase, exponentially increase, so that we might be conduits of genuine hope and real compassion, not through us, but through Jesus Christ. It is, it always will be, a love thing. Paul, who is the most prolific author in the whole of the New Testament, says it this way, 1 Corinthians 8, 1. But while knowledge makes us feel important, man, he hits the nail on the head. Isn't that true? Knowledge makes us feel important. It is love that strengthens the church. It is love that strengthens the church. It is, it always will be, a love thing. And it doesn't matter about the millions and millions of Christ followers, the thousands, 300,000 churches in America, the hundreds of thousands of Bible studies, small groups, hours and hours and hours of quiet times and prayer times and Bible reading time, hundreds and hundreds of Christian concerts, events, conferences, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of Christian college and seminary students, hundreds of denominations, hundreds of thousands of pastors and church leaders, hundreds of millions of dollars that are being given to those churches, flowing through those churches, supposedly dollars that are being turned into beneficial and tangible ministry that makes a positive difference on the planet for Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter, see, because half of the people in America are saying that we don't matter. We don't care. We need less of us, not more. And they're saying that because it's a love thing. They know it's a love thing. We can have all that stuff, which we do. We can have all that knowledge, which we do. But if people outside the faith don't feel that we love them, we're sunk. We're sunk because it's love that strengthens the church of Jesus Christ. And in order for us to cast that line 
out ahead toward who and what we want to be and become as a community, we must then spend time looking at that statistic, a hard statistic, from the perspective of what it is that people outside of the Christian faith are saying about us who are inside the Christian faith. And this will not be fun, this will not be pleasant, but we must step into it. The first thing that people outside of the Christian faith are saying about us is that we are not kind. They are saying that we are not kind. As a matter of fact, people outside of the Christian faith very often see other people who are outside of the Christian faith as being more kind than the Christ followers, the Christians that they know, which is simply tragic. In Christianity, we've done things that like reinforce that stigma, haven't we? For example, many of you are probably aware of this anonymous movement of putting up these billboards along very busy thoroughfares in major metropolitan cities that are supposedly like messages from God. They're supposed to be eye-catching and thought-provoking. And so, and some of these billboards are very cute, yes. Want to meet at my house Sunday before the game, signed God. Cool. Come on over and bring the kids, signed God. They're just these big black billboards with white letters on them. That's all they are. Lots of you have seen them, I'm sure. Love the wedding, now invite me to the marriage. Signed, God. They're cute, thought-provoking, and so. But some others of those same billboards have only reinforced the charge of unkindness many people outside of the Christian faith lodge and hold against us. Keep using my name in vain and I'll make rush hour longer. Signed, God. Really? Really? A person who's far from God driving down the interstate sees that, I'm sure they're going to pray Sinner's prayer, right? Ah, I get it. Got it. Really? How about this one? You think it's hot here. God. You're driving down the expressway in Phoenix, right? And your thoughts are drawn to the glories and majesty of heaven. No, really? How about this one? Don't make me come down there. Signed, God. Seriously, don't make me come down there. Now, whoever is responsible for those billboards, they forgot about that little incarnation deal where God actually did come down here in the flesh, and his name is Jesus, and he did not come down here to spank us. He did come down here. Look at Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. If you got a text, you could turn there. Speaking of kindness. I'm going to jump in a couple of verses ahead. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date with servants who had borrowed money from him. In the process, one of his debtors was brought in who owed him millions of dollars. Scholars actually believe that in 2011 dollars, that this number that this debtor owes is probably in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. He couldn't pay, so his master ordered that he be sold along with his wife, his children, and everything he owned to pay the debt quite common in the day of Jesus Christ. But the man fell down before his master and begged him, please be patient with me. I will pay it all. Then his master was filled with pity for him and released him And did what? Forgave his debt. Whoa. Hundreds of millions of dollars. But when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars. He grabbed him by the throat, demanded instant 
payment. His fellow servant fell down before him, begged for a little more time. Be patient with me, I'll pay it, he pleaded. But his creditor wouldn't wait. He had the man arrested, put in prison until the debt could be paid in full. When some of the other servants saw this, they were very upset. They went to the king and told him everything that had happened. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Now the king's angry. And he sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. That's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Now, there's a lot of threads in that text. There's a forgiveness thread and there's a mercy thread and there's a grace thread. But I believe really the one that overarches the entirety of that text is kindness. It's the kindness thread. Which church of Jesus Christ, if we ever hope to alter non-Christians, outsiders' view of us and the church, we're very simply going to have to start by being more kind. By being more kind. Kindness is really a central principle to the kind of kingdom of God life that Jesus came down here to inaugurate. Just think about your life. The person who has truly experienced the kindness of God, especially demonstrated through Jesus Christ dying on the cross, will be transformed into a disciple of Jesus which means in a most fundamental way that we who follow Jesus Christ experience or should experience a transformed heart that produces a changed life that reflects the exact same kindness that we have received from God. We're recipients of God's kindness. We ought be givers of God's kindness. And that kind of transformation becomes abundantly evident in the words and actions of our lives, disciples' lives. But really, honestly, all together too often, the kindness that should mark my life as a grateful recipient of God's kindness is often entirely absent from my life. Just the other day, I unfortunately had to run into the post office. I had to send back one of Dana's Christmas Presents. It doesn't matter why I had to send it back. Suffice it to say, I got the wrong size. As usual, I was in a hurry. I wanted to get in and out as fast as possible. But it just seems to me like every single time you walk into the post office, it feels like the world has stopped or something. I feel like the exact same people have been standing in that same line since the last time I was in there several months ago. It's really weird, kind of like a twilight zone effect or something. Nothing personal if you're a USPS employee. And you, you know, like they're, they're chronically understaffed in there. There's like 12 or 15 people standing in line. And it's just a forever experience at the post office, at least the one I go to. Last night, people were making suggestions to me after the Saturday night experience saying like, you should go to this, but there's never. I was like, sweet, duly noted. So as I walk in the door, I see the line, I see the chronic understaffing problem, and I notice that no one, absolutely no one was standing at that like automatic postage machine deal, which I absolutely love. Lots of people who frequent the post office, they don't know about it, or they're scared of it or something, and so it's almost always available. There it is. 
So I made a beeline right over to it, making sure that nobody cut in front of me on my way to it. And I got busy. I swiped my debit card, and I weighed the parcel. I got done, and the thing's supposed to spit out this sticker stamp deal that you put on your parcel that indicates that it's been paid for. It's kind of like a stamp that the thing spits out. Well, the machine, much to my chagrin, spit out an entirely blank label. I could have got one of those at Office Depot. There's this blank label comes out of the slot and I'm looking is there another slot did I miss something nothing at all just a blank label peel that off and stick it on there I don't think it was going to work now I had this receipt in my other hand that said I had just spent $15 for the postage I needed to mail this parcel but all I got for 15 bucks was a blank label heck of a deal I'm going like, bummer. So now I'm quickly scouring the lobby looking for a rapid fire solution to my problem. And all I saw was a line. Now it's 20 people deep waiting for help, literally from just one man standing behind the counter. And the one guy standing behind the counter was literally helping a man who had brought an entire year's worth of mailing. And he was sending it, I'm not kidding, he was sending it via some method that required that he fill out some form in triplicate for every single thing that he was sending. It was bleak. So I have no choice, do I, but to get into that line. And so I get in and I wait and I wait and I wait and my blood pressure is rising. I'm thinking about all the things I have to do. I'm late already. I'm wait, I wait, and I'm frustrated and I'm perturbed. And this isn't even my fault, the stupid machine that's supposed to, it took my money and gave me nothing but a blank label. And then after what seemed like an eternity, I got called up to the counter. And there's this very, very kind USPS employee behind the counter. And kindness was way off my radar screen by this point, really. Hands me this form, I have to fill out this long, long form, all this irrelevant data. Like, what in the world? It's a duplicate form, and I have to sign this and sign that. Why do I have to sign this? It's for the till, they said. And I was a jerk. I really was. I was a jerk. There's no other way to say it. Now, if that USPS employee knows that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I've just eroded their esteem of Christ and his followers and his church, haven't I? Church, if we ever hope to turn that, now maybe you don't have that problem. Maybe that never happens to you. Maybe you never get frustrated and you're never unkind to anyone. And if that's the case, I need to sit at your feet and learn from you. But if you do struggle with unkindness, we must, me included, do something about it church. We have a chance of turning that statistic around. We're just going to have to start by being more kind. It's a love thing. And love is often, most often expressed through kindness, isn't it? The second thing people outside the church of Jesus Christ say about us is that they don't see us doing what we say we believe. They don't see us doing what we say we believe. Another word for that is hypocrites, hypocrisy. They do not see us doing what we say we believe. Speaking of hypocrisy, look at Matthew 15, starting in verse 1. Some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrive from Jerusalem to see Jesus. 
They asked him, why do your disciples disobey our age-old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand-washing before they eat. Jesus replied, and why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, God says, honor your father and mother. Anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father and mother must be put to death. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you say, they don't need to honor their parents. And so you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. Now, here's what's in view there. The Pharisees are getting on Jesus for his disciples are doing the ceremonial hand-washing thing before they eat. Jesus said, that, forget about that. Why do you, Pharisees, require that people give to the temple this bloated temple tax system, this huge religious monstrosity that has to be funded on the backs of the people to the neglect of their parents. People were not taking care of their families the way that God would have them take care of their families, the way that God would have them honor their father and their mother tangibly, physically, with this money that should go to their parents because the Pharisees were extracting this exorbitant temple tax from the people. And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh. The word of God is not superseded by man-made structure. The word of God is never superseded by man-made structure. It should not be that way. You're living contrary to the word of God. You set up this structure of temple taxation that is unfair and is exorbitant to the neglect of parents. And look what Jesus calls them. You hypocrites, he says. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips. They say all the right things, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. For they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. And the temple taxation system had taken on this sort of God-like effect. It's what God would have you do. Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh. Nothing trumps God's word, ever. And so we ask the question, where does our today hypocritical image come from? It's because our lives do not match our beliefs. In so many ways, our lifestyle and our perspectives are no different from anyone else. Barna Research Group conducted one study exploring more than 100 variables related to values, behaviors, and lifestyles in both religious and non-religious areas of life. They compared born-again Christians to non-born-again people. They discovered that born-again adults were distinct, yes, in some religious variables. Born-again people, uh, most notably, own more Bibles. Surprise, surprise. They go to church more often. They donate more money to religious nonprofits, most notably to churches. However, when it came to the non-religious factors of the study, the real substance of people's daily choices, actions, and attitudes, there were very, very few meaningful gaps between born-again adults and non-born-again adults. Christians emerged as distinct in these areas that... People would expect us to emerge distinct religious activities and commitments and so, but not in other areas of life. Barna conducted another study which illustrates this inconsistency in living what we say that we believe quite dramatically. They found that most of the lifestyle activities of born-again Christians were the statistical equivalent to those people who are not born again. Check this out. Barna asked people to identify their activity 
over the past 30 days. Just over the past 30 days, just tell us about your activity. Born-again people in the past 30 days were just as likely to gamble or bet, visit a pornographic website, take something that did not belong to them, consult a medium or a psychic, to physically fight or abuse someone, to have consumed enough alcohol to be considered legally drunk, to have used an illegal non-prescription drug, to have said something to someone that was not true, to have gotten even with someone for something he or she said or did, and to have said mean things behind another person's back. Absolutely no difference whatsoever between born-again people and non-born-again people. No difference whatsoever. Whoa. Another study Barna conducted examined America's engagement in some kind of sexually inappropriate behavior, including looking at online pornography, viewing sexually explicit magazines or films, or having an intimate sexual encounter with someone outside of marriage. In all, they found that 30% of born-again Christians admitted to at least one of those activities in the past 30 days. Compare that with 35% of not born-again Americans. That means that really, in statistical and practical terms, the two groups are essentially no different, no different from each other. If those two groups of people were in two different rooms and you were asked to determine based on lifestyle alone which room contained the Christians, you'd be really hard-pressed to find much, if any, difference. And here's where all this lands. It's depressing. Here's where all this lands. 84% of people outside of the Christian faith say that they know personally at least one committed Christian. 84% of people outside the faith, the Christian faith, say they know at least one committed Christ follower. Yeah, check this out. 15%, though, say that the lifestyles of those Christ followers were significantly different from the norm. That gap, 84% know at least one Christ follower, yet only 15% thought that the lifestyles of those Christ followers were significantly different from the norm. It speaks volumes about our, my hypocrisy, doesn't it? Which means really, to the casual observer, we are hypocrites. We fit and we fill the bill. We're watering down the image of Jesus Christ. Yes, there are absolutely millions and millions of born-again Christians who are fantastic people. They're being transformed by their faith. They're serving their communities. They're part of changing the lives of people all around them. But the witness of those exceptional Christians is frustrated by the rest of us who do not follow Christ and represent him well. We're undermining the image of Christianity. Me. Hypocrites. Number three. People outside of the Christian faith look at us and they see us thinking that we do not need as much mercy as they do. They see us thinking that we do not need as much mercy as they do. What's another word for that? Judgmental. Judgmental. People outside of the Christian faith look at us and they say, yeah, you're judgmental. Look at Matthew 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in his tax collector's 
booth. And to be a tax collector in Jesus' day, you were a traitor, really. Follow me, Jesus says, and be my disciple to a tax collector. So what did Matthew do? He got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, check this out, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Whoa. It's the epitome of judgmentalism. Us versus them. Us versus them. Me, I'm good. Them, they're scum. They call it out. When Jesus heard this, not much gets by Jesus He said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know that they are sinners. Know that they are sinners. Do you know, do you walk in a keen awareness that you're a sinner? Philip Yancey makes a very candid conclusion. I like Yancey a lot. Having spent time around sinners and also around purported saints, I have a hunch, he says, why Jesus spent so much time with the former group. I think he preferred their company, Yancey says. I think he preferred their company. Because the sinners were honest about themselves. They had no pretense. Jesus could deal with them. In contrast, the saints put on airs. They judge him. They sought to catch him in a moral trap. In the end, it was the saints, not the sinners, who arrested Jesus. Absolutely. Judgment is central to the message of the Bible. But at the same time, the scriptures are absolutely relentless when it comes to warning us, the followers of Jesus Christ, against being judgmental. God judges, not us. It's God's job, and he impartially doles out judgment while at the very same time reveals the true motives of people's hearts. That's God's turf, not our turf. Let's leave it to him. And lots of people, lots of Christians, they grab onto Romans 1 and they sort of justify their judgmentalism, a verse like Romans 1.18. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And some Christians think that God needs help showing his anger from heaven. And so they seek to help him. But Paul goes to a very important place after his Romans 1 poignant discussion about sin. Look at Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You may think you can condemn such people, sinners, wicked people and so. Look what Paul says. You are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Do you see that? Do you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you, Brian? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you? From your sin, the NIV translation of the scriptures renders that last verse this way. God's kindness leads you toward repentance. 
God's kindness leads you toward repentance. Not God's spanking. God's kindness leads you toward repentance. And so church, if we hope to turn that statistic around, we must set aside once and for all this judgmentalism, this us versus them, this I'm good, they're scum, this I don't require as much mercy as they require because I haven't done anything even close to what... Just stop, put the yardstick down. Put it down. And the wrong ideas that you're harboring about people outside of Christian faith, just check them at the door. Just check them at the door. Just say, I'm done. Once and for all, I'm done. Oh, church that we could start seeing ourselves and seeing the people around us for the people who we really are. We're needy, we're broken, and we're hurting, and we are in desperate need of the grace and mercy and kindness of God. Oh, that we could start seeing ourselves for the people we all are, needy, broken, hurting, in desperate need, need of the grace and mercy and kindness of God and also start seeing people, all people with incredible potential as the esteemed sons and daughters of the most high God. Take off your judgment lenses. Take them off. Leave them behind and start seeing people for the potential that they carry as sons and daughters of the most high God. Will you do it? Will you do it? Will you be more kind? Will you live more consistently, less hypocritically? And will you live less judgmentally? Because this matters. This absolutely matters. There's an entire generation who is waiting for us to do just that. They're waiting and they're watching. We take your stuff and set it aside, please. And I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads if you would. Would you just go to prayer? Just ask God to continue to speak into your heart about the things we've been talking about here today. Journey Church, what's God saying to you about being more kind and about doing more of what you say you believe? And what's God saying to you about your judgmentalism, thinking that you need less mercy than everyone else does? What's he saying to you? And then what behaviors is God inviting you to step into today? so that your positive impact upon people who have been turned off by Christians, so that your positive impact on them might be redoubled. So that people right here in the Gallatin Valley might look at us, might look at our lives and say, yes, the world would absolutely be a better place if more people lived as Christians. And remember, it's not about us. It's about God. It's about his glory. It's about his fame. It's about his renown. 
but oh, that we might live in such a way that people might look on our lives and actually see God. And say, we need more of that, not less of that. We need more of that. I just invite and I challenge you to press in with Jesus. Right here, right now. Make some concrete decisions with him about what changes for you today. What changes for you today. I'm going to take a bit of a flyer here. Maybe you're a person who has been outside of Christian faith. And you've been looking in on Christianity and you've been saying all three of the things that we talked about here today. And could I just be so bold to ask you, might this be your day to be born again? Might this be your day to step across the line of faith into your very own personal relationship with Jesus? What, what's that require? It starts with you confessing to God. God, I recognize that I'm a sinner I recognize that my life has been going away from you. Forgive me, please, Jesus, for all of my sins. I want you more than I want anything else in this world. Forgive me, please. Change me, please. And as you pray, as you ask, he forgives you absolutely. As you pray, as you ask, he fills you with his Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit of God that empowers us to love God in a way that is inviting to the people in your life. It's the Holy Spirit in our lives that allows people to see God in us. And if you're praying with me today and you're saying, yes, I'm turning back to you, God. Forgive me for my sin. Make me brand new. I surrender it all to you. I'm not trusting in anything else. I'm trusting in you, Jesus. Save me. I give my life completely to you. If that is your prayer today, Can I just boldly ask you to lift your hands real high, lock eyes with me. Let me say yes with you. Just do it right now. You're saying yes to Jesus. Yeah. Way to go. God's filling you and he's changing you right now. And over there, yeah. Way to go. And over there, yes. I agree with you. I stand with you. Oh, Jesus, that we would be more kind. Oh, Jesus, that we would be less hypocritical. And oh, Jesus, that we would put down our judgmentalism so that the world, those outside of faith in you, might see you, please, God.